Your lips can do a whole lot more than kiss. Your lips express love and speak your truth. Plump your lips with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE for natural-looking results that are completely and uniquely you. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Welcome back to the Menstrual Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. I've been waiting for this one uh, with a man I highly respect and I've gotten to know over the, the, the past few months as we are gearing up for a project of our own. We'll, we'll talk a little about that, but Dan Myrick. And if you don't know that name, simply go back to the Time uh, cover uh, where it's got a picture of Dan and his partner, uh, Eduardo. Yes. Uh, as the scariest movie ever. Dan was the writer, director, and producer of the Blair Witch Project, which has become, I think it's safe to say, almost cult. Like it, it has a, oh, yeah. a cult or a strong followership behind it. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I mean, a whole new generation of kids have discovered it. Like I have a 16-year-old son and he's got some of his buds at school like, have your dad sign a poster. I love that movie and blah, 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 blah. So definitely uh, it spawned a whole like cult following and, and even probably more so overseas there's like in europe and china and there i get i get requests all over the world no, no kidding have you yeah. been over to china to talk about the film oh yeah yeah i did a symposium there a few years back um film school or it was a they were trying to get into the horror film business in a big way so they had a lot of south korean directors there mm-hmm. american directors mm-hmm. chinese directors so that was really an interesting experience um so yeah it's that whole part of the world is very much into Asian horror films, whether it's J-horror or South Korean horror. Um, so it's big, but Blair is really a big deal over there. I, I've got, I'm going with a stereotype here, it's, but it's a stereotype because it's true. I mean, the Chinese copy almost everything. Is there a, <laughs> is there would, a Chinese Blair Witch? Uh, would not copy? be surprised. There's a lot, there is a lot of uh, spoofs and so-called remakes Blair floating around. I haven't seen all of them, but um, I would not be surprised because we were in China at the time. This was a few years ago, but you'd go into a video store and it looked like you walked into a blockbuster. I mean, they had end caps and advertisement. Everything there was pirated. <laughs> the entire inventory was pirated. So, but the good news is, is they've embraced filmmaking. They've embraced that, that culture and they're doing a lot of their own really great films now. And, um, but I do, I'm a big advocate for not pirating people's artistic work. So that's, that's a big thing for me. But, um, but yeah, Blair's been, been, uh, copied, you know, some would argue it's been remade for better or worse. And, uh, and it's, was incredible. It was an incredible phenomena. And it's still to this day is one of those things that's taught in film schools and all. I'm, I'm always surprised by 
when I see a reference to Blair in a book or magazine or someone talks about, you just got Blair Witched or whatever, it's become a verb. So it's, it is, um, we were as surprised as anybody else. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to get into the Blair Witch. Um, I, the only thing I'll say is, you know, I, I did see that when it came out. And I think the best description of how I felt was bothered. Mm. I don't know if you, you're like, I was bothered by the film. Yeah. Because it was, it was realistic. I mean, even in special operations, we'd be out in the woods and we'd be in our little hide site and you'd hear the, 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 the breaking of branches. Yeah. And somebody would say the joke, hey, you, you guys think it's the Blair Witch? So, it became, it, I mean, that, that's pop culture, man. But, you know, beyond the film, people don't, most people don't know much about you. So let, let's, let's circle back to, so right now we're in Bainbridge, Washington. Right. And it's June and it's, it was 52 degrees this morning. Yeah. Um, but you were born in Florida. To well, take us back to your childhood. And, yeah. And what I'm brought a, you here? I'm a, a native Floridian born uh, 1963 in uh, Sarasota. And lived on Lomboat Key for many years and uh, didn't didn't know how good I had it back there. I mean, I was probably, I grew up on a canal, a little two-bedroom place. My dad was an engineer. Mom was an artist. And uh, yeah, we were a stone's throw from the bay and, you know, a bike ride to the beach on, on the Gulf. And, you know, I don't think I wore shoes until I was 12. You know, it was just that kind of lifestyle and, um, you know, had two or three close friends on the island on the key there. And, um, uh, and it was a simple time. Like it was, I think for a lot of people in the sixties and seventies, it was, you know, our version of, of, uh, you know, iPads were get out of the house and go, go, don't come back until come dinner. Back until 8 PM. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, when yeah, it gets yeah. dark. So, and, uh, do you, I mean, so during the days were you guys at the beach most of the time? Yeah. I mean, we did, uh, we play in the woods a lot. I love playing in the woods and we build forts and, um, we just used our imaginations. I mean, there was sometimes, believe it or not, we just stood around bored out of our minds. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people are afraid to have their kids just be bored. So like, yeah, sometimes you're just bored and you come up with something, but, um, well, but, today your parents would be reported to the, right. Yeah. No, I tell my kids, it's okay to be bored, you know, but invariably if you've got an active mind, you'll come up with something, you'll start drawing or whatever. I used to like to draw a lot. Um, but yeah, growing up back in those days was, was, you know, simple. And, uh, you know, my dad taught me a lot and my mom taught me a lot. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but you didn't, you didn't need a lot of money in those days to live on the, on the key where now that same piece of property would probably go for a million and a half. It's crazy. It's but, um, but yeah, my dad, you know, climbed poles and worked as an electrical engineer and for floor power and light company. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, pretty simple times. Now your mom bought you a, if our research is right, a 35 millimeter camera mm. and you took that to heart. Was it, was that the start of, what Even, has become a, 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 a yeah your passion your career? I mean, I I my I got sort of my artistic sense from my mom. So I used to love to draw a lot, and in particular, you'll get a kick out of this army dioramas. So, and she would make fun of me because I would have this big piece of paper and I draw this elaborate combat war, um, planes coming in, choppers landing, people fighting, and I would do all the sound effects. I had the whole music score in my head and I'm doing all the sound effects of the flight, flight of the Valkyrie the whole bit, man. And I'm sitting and I'll do that for hours. And she's like, Danny, what are you doing in there? And it's like, I'm drawing, I'm drawing this warp sequence. Cause I grew up on, you know, Sansa Iwo Jima and yeah. all those movies. I used to love that stuff. 
And I was really, like I mentioned earlier, I was really into World War II airplanes. So I joined P-40 Warhawks and Corsairs and, you know, P-51, of course, and all that kind of stuff. So I really was into the visual medium of drawing. And then my Aunt Pat bought me this book called Movie Magic, and it showed up one Christmas, and I opened it up, and I, I and it was all the behind the scenes of how the big movies were made, King Kong and... You know, all those films like, oh, there's a whole industry here behind the scenes of all this. And that's really what sparked my curiosity. And, and how old are you at this time? Probably, I don't know, 11, 12 in that, in that neighborhood. And so about a year or so later, my mom bought me that camera. And, and that's sort of where I first learned kind of a visual sense, composition, lighting, sort of kind of get a feel for it. And then shortly after that, I got my hands on like one of the first video cameras that came out in the day. I was like, man, you can shoot your own movies. And um, so we did a couple of movies, quote unquote. One was called Skateboarders because we were into skateboarding and whatnot. So we did this movie called Skate, me and my best friend at the time. And um, so, yeah, the bug sort of grabbed me. And and um, and from that point on, I, I could remember that this is sort of what I want to do. I'm not quite sure how to get there, but... Um, I want to learn how to, I want to learn how to make people feel this way. When you go into a movie and you come out with that feeling, I want to make people feel that way. I remember thinking that. Hey, so we, I know before this interview, we talked about the, uh, the docu-series, mm-hmm. uh, well, let's, let's call it a historical fiction, uh, uh, the offer by Paramount mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they mainly follow, uh, Al Ruddy. Yeah. Um, and again, what's his name? Miles, my, Miles no. Teller, you can speak up. <laughs> so Miles Teller, he's, the guy seems like he's in everything right now, but uh, the guy who plays Bob Evans, the head of uh, yeah. Paramount, talks about the feeling you get. I mean, we talked about this. I love movies because yeah. it's the one time I can block out all the crap in my life. Yeah. I can imagine I'm a superhero. Yeah, I just said that. Mm-hmm. I've got my popcorn and Diet Coke. That's like a mandatory. I'm with you. It, and you can you you can make this seemingly impossible possible yeah. just through, through the, the the dreaming of the film. Well, we I I'm a firm believer that we're all storytellers. Like this is one of the things when I go to a film school and they have me in, in for a panel or to teach for a little bit or whatever. We all have a script inside of us. We all we're all storytellers. At the end of the day, one of the examples I use because our brains are wired that way. You're walking down the street. And you see your neighbor's car parked in the driveway and there's a dent in the side of the quarter panel. You immediately start thinking, well, what, how'd that dent get there? It wasn't there yesterday. Was he in a parking lot? Was he speeding? Was he drunk last did night? He hit and kill did somebody? He, did he hit and kill somebody? These narratives start cycling in your head because that's the way our brains are wired. So we all, I think, have that common need to to tell a story and to have stories told to us. And I think that's what's so wonderful about filmmaking is it, 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 it brings all these disciplines, whether it's writing, visuals, music, sound, all together in one big medium that allows us to escape into these stories. And, and there's nothing like it when it's done well. It'll change your life. I mean, it's changed policies it's changed yeah. i mean it's it's an incredibly influential medium um 
And we all, I don't care who you are, what political persuasion you are, we all have heroes that are from movies. And, and I think that's um, a really kind of humbling place to be and to be a part of that process for people. Whenever anyone comes up to me, especially a young filmmaker, and says, you know, your movie inspired me to make movies. That's like, awesome, dude. That's the, most, that's, that's the coolest thing in the world because you may be 10 times better than me and you, the, the, you may be the next Scorsese out there. And 10 years from now, you reference Blair Witch, like I was part of the DNA of this whole process. So it's really humbling it's just an amazing place to be to have people like experience that in movie theater and have that i think really necessary escapism we need that we need that time of relief that time of 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 fantasy in our lives to help to help get us through some of the tougher times so yeah it's great to be a part of that i'm gonna gonna be a romantic here you know the one hope i would have is that people walk out of films and they do recognize that one you can be the hero of your own film yeah as bland and dull and I, i think my life is bland and dull as bland and dull as it is, this is, this still, is the seal guy talking this here. Is, I, I'm still the hero of my own story. And, you know, if I yeah. try to tell my kids anything, it's to find success for yourself and then pour into it. Man. Yeah. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be sexy. It doesn't have to be. But the, no. the, the power of movies, you just hit it. Have you ever met a foreigner who hasn't in their mind shaped their opinions about Americans that's not based off movies? I mean, the culture, especially American culture, when I think of, you know, Western culture in general, I mean, when I, when you see, you know, uh, remote villages in the, 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 the farthest reaches of Africa and all, and they're wearing like Nike t-shirts. You know, we know we've reached pretty much every corner of the universe. Um, it is, and to me, we call it American culture, but Amer- for me, America is, it's an, it's an ideal. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a state of mind of, allowing people to explore, to innovate, to be the best, their best selves. And there's good and bad that comes with all that. But I think on the whole, the world's a better place because we're allowing anybody to be their best self. Right. And that's what we're all fighting for. Um, And movies and pop culture are all of us out there trying to do cool stuff. We're up to things. And and express ourselves and that's magnetic that's why that's why that 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 pop culture spreads so readily because everybody really wants that you know you look at these dictatorships overseas and 90 percent of their job is trying to keep it out trying to keep their populace in the dark about that need to express yourself and that's you can only do that for so long i think it's unsustainable to keep it to keep it out forever um because it's funny, my wife and I, when we were, and not to get too off track here, but the Iraq war, like prior to the run, run up to the Iraq war, my wife was, she's a huge researcher and mm-hmm. she, she works for research departments and stuff like that. It's a writer herself, but we were tracking blogs of local Iraqis in, in Baghdad, just kids and families and all that. They're posting their daily lives out there. And the number one pastime in, in Iraq was playing Unreal, the, the game Unreal. Um, and it was like, yeah, they're just teenagers. They're yeah. just like teenagers anywhere else. They're getting pirated copies of video games and they want to play video games. And so that escapism that, that we all share, I think, is a common thread through humanity. It's, we're all storytellers and we like, we like to be taken away. And we would like to tell stories. We like to hear them. And it's just, um, it's just a lot of, 
a lot of fun to be a part of that process. And and, and I know we're going to talk about the the, the movie experience uh, with streaming platforms. Mm. Uh, there's just nothing that replaces that that right. experience, like going to a theater. Man, the the big screen, the candy, the popcorn, the 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 stadium seating. It, it's just not the uh, yeah. The I mean, it's and it's and I, I at the risk of sounding like you know some you know uh, hardcore purist. It really is its own its own experience, its own medium. There's there's there there may be some digital VR equivalent down the road or something, but but going into a theater, seeing that 30, 40 foot screen in front of you and having your attention focused just on that, you, you know, because it's just not cool to pop out your cell phone and start surfing or anything. You have to be focused on what on on the movie. And yeah, I love that large popcorn in my hand and that Diet Coke. And it is, it is that two hours where you just to get channel everything out and just be focused on the movie. And when it's done well, you come out a changed person. You talk about, you think about that movie and it never leaves you. And those experiences are, they don't come every day. You can't, you can't, well, I think part of the problem with Hollywood is they try to, to cheapen that whole experience. They put bad product on the screen. So everyone's gotten jaded by it. Mm -hmm. But when it's done right with the right movie, it's like nothing else. It really is. So that brings up a question. You go and you watch a movie that is just so indescribably bad. Yeah. And you ask yourself, what, what studio in the right mind put money behind that? Is part of the industry just sometimes like, like you've got to produce some volume of films? Well, everything... I think this applies to most any industry, even the military. I think they, they find a formula that worked then mm -hmm. and they try to, they try to don't fight the last war. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They, they try to cut and paste that same formula and, and that's low risk. Right. And everybody wants to keep their job in the studio system. Nobody wants to be the one person, you know what, let's try something different. And if they fail, they're, they're done. Right. So it's a very risk adverse environment. So they try to go with what will work, what worked last three or four times. And, and I get it. It's a business. They've got shareholders. Yeah. They're trying to not be to strike this balance between risky films and ones that they know will make money. I mean, look, if another Star Wars movie gets stamped out, people are going to go see it. It's, mm -hmm. it's like printing money. Mm -hmm. So I get that. But the problem on the flip side is that the product that comes out in those theaters just looks like glorified TV shows after a while. You're like, man, this isn't what it used to be. And when the first star Wars came out or whatever. So it tends to turn off a lot of people because it's not cheap to go see a movie when you've got an alternative like Netflix at home, you're going to spend 20 bucks, $15 for a ticket. Then God knows you get popcorn and Coke for your family. I mean, you could drop a hundred, hundred and a half and not even think about yeah. it. And if it's something that you could get for three ninety nine on Netflix, you know, a week later, that's a tough that's a tough sell. So it better be worth it, right? So, um, so that's I think sort of the dilemma theaters are, are in right now is that they're used to kind of pumping out sort of average product, but people are like tired of that spending that kind of money. Um, but you have a Top Gun come out or a, or a Dune or an event film like that, yeah. people will go. Oh, the yeah. box office is crazy for Top Gun because that's one of those films. Yeah, I'm taking my son and my kids out to Top Gun and we're going to a movie movie because that's the way you want to watch it. And they it. held on to that for two years, right? Yeah, well, that's a big... I Because mean, COVID came out and they're like, hey, just not... 
Yeah, there's, it's, I mean, that was one of those things. I mean, Tom Cruise is like the hardest working guy in Hollywood. And, no kidding. And um, so, and to his credit, he really wants to make sure, he knows exactly his lane. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm the freaking movie star of the world. This thing has got to rock. And it has to have X, Y, Z. He has total control over the process. So I, I really, I mean, he makes blockbusters. The guy is like nobody else. So he takes his time and does it right. and Which is um, the hardest thing to do, though, to hold a film for two years. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Patience, man. He's up there with, like, a Kubrick when it comes to having power. And, like, when Kubrick did Eyes Wide Shut, he said to the studio, look, I'm, you want me to do Eyes Wide Shut? I don't want to do Eyes Wide Shut. So I, I need Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise on my set for two years, and they can't do anything else. And, like, okay. The two biggest stars in Hollywood. You got them for two years and all right, that's it. And see you when you're done. So, but everybody wanted to be in business with Stanley Kubrick. So this, uh, you can count on one hand, the, the filmmakers and actors that have that kind of pull with oh. the studios. So it's, it's very rare, but, um, but yeah, he, he, he made sure it was done right. And it was shot right. And, and, and Bruckheimer himself is a big movie guy. He's, I mean, big as in size and scope, so they had the, you know, that was the A-listers on that film. I mean, and one of Cruz's big talking points and his big push is that he does a lot of his own stunts. He's a pilot himself. He's a skydiver. Yeah. He's crazy. And I mean, he, they were like, let us fly an F-35. No, dude. <laughs> Finally kind of drew the line. <laughs> like, we'll give you a trainer over here, but we're not letting you fly the F-35. Um, it's, you know a hundred million dollar plane or whatever. It's like, you see that going to the side of a mountain, but he's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Quite literally. But, uh, yeah. So, but they did it right. They did a, they did a great job on the film. It was a really super entertaining film. And, and, and I think story wise, they did a good job as well. So you're an anomaly in the sense of, it almost sounds like you wanted, you knew what you wanted to do when you were young. Mm. You choose to go to the university of central Florida yeah. film school. Right. Was that a formative period of your time in terms of the curriculum and professors? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, it, it became fashionable for a while to sort of bash on film schools. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it, speaking from my own personal experience, I kind of, you know, I went into the business. I mean, when I graduated from high school, we didn't have any money for college. So I had to go out and get a real job. And so I worked for a while as an editor, did, you know, odd video job. I started a small video company in Fort Myers, Florida. Actually, we were the first company to videotape real estate listings and no one had been doing it at that time. So we said, like, we should videotape real estate listings. They all have us pictures. So we started that whole trend. Nobody knows this. We started that whole trend of videotaping, you know, high-end real estate listings. And Century 21 came in and just crushed it just crushed yeah. it. we were done they had mass they had volume it wasn't the career path i wanted to be in anyway but um but i'm always like trying to come up with with ideas but so yeah i finally my mom said you know danny you need to go back to school um so i signed up uh, did community college got my aa degree at the local community college because i could afford it and then got accepted to the university of central florida inaugural film program they wanted to see a reel and submit an essay so i did all that got in first class um so i said i'm moving to orlando and i sold my car sold everything got a roommate and you know went up to orlando got her got got set and started learning the real process of making a film this is how you actually tell a story on film 
learning it from established instructors, and more importantly, meeting a group of like-minded people, young, energetic, 20-somethings, full of applesauce, thinking we were going to conquer the world. But it was being in that energy and that creative environment was really an amazing experience for me. Um, and we'll always value it. It was, it was more than a film school. It was a family and, and, um, getting to know, um, you know, filmmakers that I would work with for years and years after that, like, you know, the guys that we did Blair Witch with were all my filmmaking friends. So, um, so it was a great, a great time for me and, and always look back on it fondly even though it's getting farther and farther in the yeah. distance. <laughs> that, you know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I, I went and got my MBA because when I left the military, I didn't yep. know a damn thing about business. We used a different set of tools for yep. risk mitigation and planning. And it was less about what I learned and more about the the tribe yeah. you're surrounded with. And one, I was 39 and they're all like in their 27s. Well, yeah, I'm, doing, I'm getting my MBA at the Johns Hopkins now. So, no kidding. Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing philosophy there because I just want to be, you know, to keep expanding and learning. But, um, but it, like you said, it's about the meeting the people and being with like-minded, smart, energized individuals that really inspire you. And, um, and that was, and I'm a competitive guy too. So I'm yeah. surrounded by a bunch of competitive filmmakers and we're all kind of out trying to outdo each other. Yeah. It sounds like you're all about tribe. Iron yeah. sharpens iron. So is one man sharpens another. And yeah. you happen to meet a certain individual there mm-hmm. and in doing the research. So, uh, you did the Blair Witch with Eduardo Sanchez. Yes. But what we found is you said something about the reason you loved Eduardo so much is a reason that most people don't like people that, that disagree with them. They want, they want like-minded people that are just going to go with their narrative. You said mm-hmm. Eduardo would challenge your thoughts and you guys would have these heated debates what was it about that relationship that you know you ultimately made a phone call to Eduardo and said, "Hey, remember remember my idea about the woods?" Let's yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. It's it's and it's a tough tug of war. I mean it's 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 hard to um, to acknowledge that maybe your idea is not the best idea of mm-hmm. the moment, and that you know the collaboration with someone that you respect and that's creative. Um, may have a better idea than you and or or expound on an idea that you came up with and make it better so it becomes bigger than the sum of its parts so um ed and i just had a great creative exchange it was like nobody else he he and i um not all the ideas were great but but we'd always come away with something better than what we individually thought of originally and and i think blair which was a product of that collaboration that it wouldn't have been as good if any one of us had done it on our own. And our producer, Greg Hale also was a big contributor and mm-hmm. Mike Manello and, mm-hmm. and Rob Cowio. They were this a whole kind of, we were sort of like a band all kind of, you know, writing the music together. And, um, and that collaboration was, um, it's a rare thing and it's, and it's not even something that necessarily is sustainable forever. Even the best bands yeah. break up eventually, yeah. but but for that period in our lives, it was it was the right time, the right kind of movie and the right kind of collaboration because it was an experiment. Nobody really knew what we were getting into. There was no real kind of blueprint for the kind of movie we were making. I mean, Greg, as a matter of fact, um, Greg Hale, our producer, was a former SF guy. And when we were out shooting the film, we're like, well, we needed this thing to look realistic and we can't have cameras out there and a crew. And 
how do we get them through the woods but still control where they're going? Well, we have these GPS things. Our hunters use these GPS devices. So we use these devices and his military knowledge sort of laid out the logistics of how to map out the actors getting from point A to point B, having escape plans and all this in case someone gets hurt, all that stuff he brought to bear. It would have been a complete cluster screw up if it had just been Ed and I, because we had no clue about any of the logistics stuff. So it was all that collaboration, not only creatively, but also from a logistics standpoint that made Blair what it was. And that's all, all spawned from film school, us knowing each other in film school. But there was a period. So you guys graduate? Yeah. University of Central Florida Film School. Mm. You all go off and you're holding different jobs. Yeah. And what, so I know you made a phone call to, to Eduardo and said, hey. Let's do I, that Woods movie. What, what, was, <laughs> was there something? I mean, was it one of these, these I don't want to say odd jobs, but was there just no passion in the jobs that you held at the time? You're like, hey, this is not what I was meant for. Yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the hard reality. You, you, you're you in this amazing environment in film school. Everyone's making movies and we're all going to be the next Spielberg and yeah. da, 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 da. And then you, you graduate and suddenly reality hits and like you have your film degree and no one gives a shit, right? So, okay, now I got to make a living. So I get odd jobs editing. I've learned like my editing chops doing, you know, infomercials and stuff like that. So you, you work in that. I worked a little bit as a DP for a while mm-hmm. in lo- local films and they're all bad movies. I really, I don't even go all the details of the bad films I've been on, but so you're bouncing around and like, wow, this big Spielbergian dream I had is starting to fade away <laughs> because you got the light bill to pay, right? You've got, you've got reality. Um, and it's a very tough thing to like be, you know, in your mid twenties and all your friends that aren't crazy filmmakers are getting real jobs and they're getting married and, they have nice cars and you're still living like a film student and with this idea that you're going to direct a movie one day. And that's, um, that's a tough place to be. It was a real rude awakening for us. And that's when I finally said, you know what, Ed, he was up like designing websites up in Maryland. Mm. It's like, and we didn't hate our jobs. It just wasn't what we had envisioned for ourselves. So we said, look, man, let's do this woods movie. It's the cheapest film we could do, you know, and it was the easiest one logistically that we could pull off. So the entry point to get it made was, was lower than anything else that we had in our heads. So uh, we were like, oh, all right, let's do it. And um, we started kind of hammering it out. And then Greg Hale got involved and, and I pitched it to him. He was working as a set dresser in mm-hmm. L.A. at the time. And he was in the same head space as we were. Just this isn't what I wanted to do with my life. So I pitched Greg the idea of the Blair Witch premise, and he was like, holy jeez, man, how do I get involved? And so he had saved it some money because he's the more responsible one of the three of us. So I'll throw in five grand, dude, if you want to get this thing going. And I said, okay, let's do it. And so he helped develop it along with Ed and I, and that's really got the ball rolling is that we were sort of just in this stasis in this place after film school, after having these big ideas and realizing, okay, the, the dreams that we had weren't being realized. So we have to go make it, find a way to make it happen. Before you guys actually got to filming this thing, had you ever pitched it to mentors or anyone who said, Hey, this, this really isn't a good idea. Well, we, we had the notion, I, I, I was thinking that, you know, it's a difficult idea to pitch mm-hmm. because 
no one had done a movie like that before. So it's not like, oh, girl meets guy and they fall in love. You don't have any of that to fall back on. So no one had any clue about what kind of movie we're going to make. So um, I came up with the idea of shooting a, a kind of a proof of concept video, an eight minute, we call it the investor reel, but it was basically an eight minute proof of concept before we had shot the actual movie. Ed was still in Maryland at the time. So Greg and I kind of put together this proof of concept and it was a fake documentary about the documentary we were going to shoot. So it's like a meta meta movie, right? So we put together this whole thing about this found footage came up. The rights are going to come up to it. Haxon Films, which is our production company. We're going to get the rights to it. We're going to show the world. And we completely mapped out the backstory to it all. And it was completely fake. And we said to ourselves, well, if we can go into a room full of dentists or doctors and fool them with this eight minute reel, then we can say, we're going to do this for a whole movie. And that's, we'll let that sell it, the whole, the whole idea. So we did that. We pitched rooms full of doctors, rooms full of dentists, a producer, wannabe producer here and there in Orlando and all, nobody, no one bit, bit on it. And then one day I got a call from a, 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 our co-producer friend, Mike Manello, and said, you know, John Pearson's coming into town. And John Pearson at the time was a producer's rep. Mm-hmm. He discovered Spike Lee, Kevin Smith. He was a big deal in the indie film world. And he had his own TV show called Split Screen on Bravo. And basically it was a series, like an anthology series of these wacky individuals that um, he did stories about. And it was a really fun show. And But he liked to hire local filmmakers. Whenever he was in town to do a local story, he liked to hire local shooters and stuff like that. So he was in town in Orlando to do Gator Lando. There's that that tourist trap that <laughs> alligator tourist trap it's a, hilarious so he's in orlando to get orlando and mike called me up and said hey john pearson's coming in town he's looking for a local shooter do you want to to apply and i yeah man it's john pearson and this is just when we wrapped up our investor reel right so i said to myself okay if i get it on so i talked to john on the phone yeah if you can run camera come on out so awesome so i'll give it about three days it's about a four-day shoot so I get to know him let them trust me, and then I can hand them my tape of this investor rail. So we did the Gator Lando segment, had a blast. He's a super cool guy. And at the end, of, when we were wrapping it up, I said, John, I, I know you probably hear this a million times, but I've got this this pitch for this movie that I want to do called Blair Witch. And he goes, okay, send me the tape. And he's, he, his production series were in Jersey, so... Sent it to him like a couple days later, and and I figured that was going to be the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A week later, he calls me and says, Dan, what the hell is this? Is this real? And I just started laughing. I said, no, John, it's all fake. That's the whole point of the movie. We're gonna, he goes, oh, my God. Okay, tell you what. I want to show this as my last episode on split screen. It's a cliffhanger. I'm like, really? So I said, I'll pay you the rights to do that. He paid us $5,000 for the rights to do it. I'm like, what? I mean, I'm like, and so I know you guys are up to 10,000. Yeah. So I, I told, so I told Greg and Ed, I said, Pearson's going to show our investor reel on the last episode of split screen and play it as if it were real. Right. And Bravo had a pretty good size audience yeah. at the time. So, um, so that's what happened. And, and so they set it up for the second season, like next spring where we, we have shot, shot the film. We're going to, they're going to do a re revisit, for the premiere episode of the second season. So where we get um, another hit on his show then. So that really got 
the ball rolling. Because when we got the kind of blessing from John Pearson, mm-hmm. people started to notice. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we were went out. We had about 35000 bucks or so raised. And we went out and shot the movie um, in Maryland. Um, and came back and started editing. Ed and I were editing. And, and, uh, and that was... How long did it take us to edit? Like eight, nine months? Yeah, almost for, a, forever. Almost a year to edit the movie. The, the, yeah. let, let me let me ask this before we get to the editing part, and we got to take a mid roll break. So, mm. you guys are out there in the woods for eight days. Mm. We had read that you tried to create conditions for the actors that brought out anxiety, yeah. and so you guys would. I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is it safe to say you you messed with them at night? We Off. did. Yeah. It was, it was like our version of Sears school, I guess it was like, <laughs> we, 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 they knew what was coming. I mean, as far as that we were going to mess with them. Yes. So it was, it wasn't like they had no idea. I mean, they knew they were in a movie and our whole approach was, um, trying to preserve this realism and we wanted them to remain in character as much as possible. And the mandate was to just shoot everything. We're going to, we'll supply you with plenty of footage blank tapes and all that. And at each one of these waypoints, <clears throat> excuse me, there'd be a milk crate mm-hmm. with more batteries for their cameras, um, more tapes and more film for the cam- for the cameras. And they were to leave off what they shot so we could grab it. So, so that was to keep them in character as much as possible. And at each one of these waypoints is where they were instructed to set up their camp. Meanwhile, Ed and I were shadowing them in the woods, you know, to observe their performances. So we'd also review their tapes every night. And we're in full camo. We're like, we had to, we were, had to be like, we didn't have ghillie suits or anything like that on, but we were in full camo hiding in the bushes because we never knew which way the, they were going to flash a camera around. We didn't want, we wouldn't want to tell them like, oh, only shoot in that direction. We want them to be able to go anywhere. So we didn't want two directors standing watching yeah. in the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had to be hiding and in camo watching their performance. So every now and then we had to, reset things and because you know heather might have been going too hot with her performance we had to kind of tune her down so we had made these kind of on the fly audible adjustments along the way and then of course watch the footage as dailies every night to see how things were progressing and that's sort of how we directed them and kept them on the narrative path but also preserved this sort of stage of reality so they could be in character almost the whole time so at night we would tell them for example like the scene with this tense shaking, like, yeah. okay, guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't want anybody getting hurt. As you know, the woods are not lit like it is in Hollywood. Like when you're at night in the woods, it's pitch black, unless you got a full moon, but you've got a pretty big canopy. It is dark and you can get an eye poked out. It can be very dangerous. So we, we mapped out a trail for them to run on so they wouldn't get hurt. So I just follow. Here's the stick here, and even, even then, even yeah. then, that's that's hard. Still a little sketchy. Yeah, and they're three actors, right? So, you know, they're not like outdoorsmen. So we gave them follow the trail, stay on the trail, don't go run off the trail. Something's going to happen. Just roll camera. The minute something happens, just start rolling camera. They didn't know exactly what would happen, so we had the baby's voices outside the tent. We started shaking the tent, and that was their cue to bolt. So we did that. Um, and that was an example where logistically we had to have it kind of mapped out, mm-hmm. um, but it was improvised as well. So it was a little combination of both, but, but it was a lot of that. And, and so that, that's a little bit of sleep deprivation. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we wanted to, we have a famous line from Greg said like, your 
safety is our primary concern, but your comfort is not. That was, that was typical SF guy, right? Um, so it was eight days. I mean, it's, they were, they were never going to starve. Right. I mean, and so I've got to ask, did you guys, did I read that correctly? You started to we went, reduce we, their we calories. Ramped back, we ramped back their calories. Um, I mean, cause there's just, it's hard to fake being that tired, yeah. you know, even with makeup and all, I mean, mm-hmm. do that. I mean, you tell when someone's just bloody exhausted. Yes. And when you're running a caloric deficit, you just don't want to do anything. You're just laying around. You don't want to move. You don't want to get up. You don't even want to go to the bathroom. You're just so beat and beat down. And we wanted to have that look with them. So we, we and it was raining part of the time, which makes everything more miserable. So again, we gave them enough to get by, but we ramped it down to sort of allow them to be more in character throughout that whole process. And um, so it was a little bit of, we called it method filmmaking where we were sort of subjecting them to this sort of uh, real world thing. I mean, it's just like in, you know, like when you guys have the, the fake prison camp yeah. exercise. I mean, yeah. you know, you're not, they're not going to actually shoot you in the head or anything like that, but it's still brutal. All yeah, you're pissed. And you're, you're pissed mad the and you're angry and you're like, you're tired. Okay, I get it guys. I'm done. You know? So it was sort of a lot like that in a smaller way where, um, they knew they were doing this movie, this crazy wacky movie, but they were pissed and they were, oh, they I were, bet they didn't know what they signed up for. That's they had a general idea and, and credit to Heather. I mean, here's a female, right? Yeah. Bunch of dudes in the woods. We're going to shoot this snuff film. We're like, well, hold on. What are we doing now? <laughs> I thought I was, so I, I really have to credit her for being pretty ballsy about going out there. And, and she even brought a big like hunting knife with her just to be, just in case things went south. She had, she had a little protection, but after a while, smart, smart well-trained woman, smart girl. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was, um, but she, after a while, especially with, with Greg's expertise, like we're mapping out, we got, you know, we're, we're definitely concerned about your safety and this and that, and it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be camping in the woods and there's its own sets of hardships, but um, this ain't going to be like a normal movie. <laughs> it's not going to be a Porta John, you know, offset or, or trailer for you to go back to after things wrap up. It's going to be camping for eight days in and the woods. And it was not a normal movie on the back end. No, either, no. Which made it so unique. Yeah. What I want to go to a mid-roll break, and, and what we do for a mid-roll break is we ask two questions, and then I want to get into what came next. Mm. In the ro- I, I've got to assume it was a roller coaster because yeah. you guys couldn't anticipate it. I mean, we, we all want whatever we do to, to blow up, but right. I mean, that is almost an understatement to what Blair Witch became. Yeah, it was, even to this day, I'm sort of amazed by how big it got and how ill-prepared we were for it. Um, but it was like no other movie. It was just, it was even, I mean, I've been in this business now for 25, almost 30 years. And there was, there's, there hasn't been a movie since that that's been that kind of culturally changing moment. Um, and it's, it was, it's amazing to be a part of that, but, but we learned a lot in that process and it was certainly took all of us by surprise. That's insane. And we're going to get to that. So the two questions, one, biggest regret of your life, biggest regret of my life. And these are meant to be stump, stump the chumps. No, no, there's, I mean, I've got, I've got quite a few, I'm trying to pick which one. <laughs> um, if I, not, we'll, we'll default to your wife. 
I'm but sure yeah, she she's would, got, yeah. yeah, she's got a whole she's, list. She's ready. Um, I mean, I wish I had, I wish I had stayed in college earlier. I mean, I kind of went in and out. I, mm-hmm. I, I would have gotten, I think a lot farther sooner had mm-hmm. I, have I had been better disciplined, um, to stay in college. I was kind of a dreamer and, and, um, just should have knuckled down and, and, and stuck it out. So I kind of regret that I got sort of a late start in that process. Um, so that's, I don't know if that's the biggest regret, but that's definitely one I would, if I had to do it over, I would. That's amazing you say that. I would stuck it out. <laughs> because your route, there may have been a maturation process there that you just needed that you wouldn't have gotten in school. I mean, that's, it's a, I think it's a very good argument and not everybody's ready to jump right into academics out of high school. You want to have some time to kind of learn, find yourself. So I, I, I get that. Um, so who knows? I mean, yeah. I'm, I am where I'm at for the choices I've made. Um, but is, but that, I think if I had to do it over again, I'd, I'd probably would have attempted to stick it out yeah. a little, a little more. I was just, um, you know, mucking about as a, as a 18, 19 year old, 20, early 20 something year old, you know, uh, not, not being as disciplined as I think I should have been, or I could have been. So you, you mentioned too much of a, a dreamer. It seems like that has a bad connotation. Now people are like, Oh, he's just a dreamer. Like good. Just te- teach him the, the importance of operationalizing or executing, executing upon those dreams. Yeah. Like I want my kids to be dreamers. I just want them to know how to take action to operate, operationalize that dream. And that's a good point. I mean, there's nothing wrong with dreaming and there's and actually, I, we encourage it in our own kids. I love the fact that my, my, both my kids are artistic. My son loves playing music and my daughter is a really good drawer. And, and, you know, fundamentally it's, is, is, if you're happy, if you get up in the morning and you're happy doing what you're doing and you're able to make a living at it, you slayed the beast. And I've said this a million times and I tell them that it's like, look, you don't need to be the next Elon Musk. It's, there, there'll, there'll be those folks out there. But if you can get up and you love your job and you, and you, you, you can raise a family and do it, you, you're doing better than 99% yeah, of the people out there. It really is. So find a way to make those dreams make you enough of a living to be comfortable mm-hmm. and happy and you're, you're good to go. Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive ideas. I don't think you have to be an attorney if you hate being an attorney mm. to make money or whatever. So I think um, that's very possible. And I'm was lucky enough to be able to do that. And, um, and sometimes you have to make sacrifices. I mean, like I, like I was saying earlier, I mean, there were my friends that were my age with nice new cars and they had a cool apartment and had all the stuff, but they were working some crap job they hated. And I was doing what I loved to do and I didn't have two pennies to rub together, but I'm thinking, you know, down long-term that'll change. And that's, you have to believe in yourself and have to believe that, that what you're doing will, will pay off. For, For all the good things that America is, I think that has become one of the most prominent definitions publicly of, uh, of success is money. Yeah. And you just hit it. I, hey man, I, I had a great job shortly after I retired and I was making good money, but I was miserable in that environment. Yeah. Miserable. Yeah. Been there. Yeah. And, and it was my, God bless my wife. I mean, she didn't mind the money that we were pulling in, Yeah, but she's like, dude, this, this isn't you just leave. And, yeah. and it, I mean, don't get me wrong. When I left, there's been some struggles that income pretty much came to a screeching halt. Yeah. But now that I've got my own team and, God, I hope I'm creating the environment that they're 
enjoying and, and not, you know, having the same feelings, but it's been, it's been that much more enjoyable. It is. And it really, that's really what we're all doing. We're looking for happiness, right? At the end of the day. And I credit my wife for the same thing where I remember agonizing over things and she, she just gave me the best piece of wisdom in the world. Like you got to enjoy the journey. You know, you can sit there Not and the spend, spend yeah. all your whole time worrying about the destination. You got to enjoy that journey. And it's tough sometimes because you're sometimes a journey at the moment sucks, but overall it's getting you where you want to go, but you have to enjoy that process. And that's, I think, um, lost a lot in American culture where it's all focused on who's got the biggest house, who's got the nicest car, who's got xyz what's your bank account versus this bank account it's like man if you're i know so many people in hollywood that have a lot of credits and a lot of money and all and they're all miserable they're on their third wife and their kids are estranged like i don't want to be that guy and i was going down that road like shortly after blair witch we were you know doing raw feed projects we were doing six movies for for warner brothers i was doing my own movie in morocco and and i was not sleeping, insomnia like crazy. And I was uh, up all night and it was really a difficult time for us. And that's one of the reasons why we came out to initially to Seattle to sort of take a sabbatical from all that and kind of recalibrate, like what's important in my life? I mean, it's not the volume of movies I'm making. It's choosing the right projects that are good for me, good for my, for our family and having a normal life, a balance. And that's, it's a tricky thing to, to, to find. Not a lot of people ever find that. And um, so, yeah, I think I credit my wife for being sort of my mentor in that department. She's a lot smarter than me in a lot of ways, but that was one of those things where you kind of get caught up with the competition. You get caught up with keeping up with the Joneses and all that. And like, I don't need to be, I don't need to be the next Spielberg. Dude, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. But so this year, I think the period, I think I know what you're talking about is like 2006, 2009. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was great to be written up in the articles and Dan's really, you know, yeah, doing it feels all this pretty freaking good, dude. Let's be honest. Everyone's like, man, you're kicking ass. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And like, that's great and all, but I'm not sleeping. <laughs> I take an Ambien every night and it was really hard. And we had just had our son Tucker, you know, so I was not getting to see him at all. And, I didn't want him growing up on a movie set or anything like that. And it was, um, he went straight in the NICU, in the NICU right after uh, the birth. So that was a preemie. Yeah. No, so, uh, respiratory yeah. Issues. My, yeah. My, my daughter was a preemie for, uh, she was in the NICU for three months. That, that, those were three of the hardest months. It yeah. sounds like where you were at back then is where I'm at now. Yeah. And it's almost like I'm, uh, one, I, I get the text from all my buddies like, bro, you're crushing it. I'm yeah. like, ah, smoke and mirrors, man. That's my reply. Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors, yeah. Uh, but I struggle with, I think I confuse activity hmm. or, or motion with progress. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, move more, move more, do more, do more, do. Yeah. And it's, it, it's actually not the smart way of doing business. Uh, so that's very interesting, man. Yeah, you have to work. And that's part, it's just. From growing up and become more mature. Yeah. I mean, it's like Michael Jordan may have lost his step later in his career, but he he still scored the same amount of points. He just was smarter. With he how, saw the more direct line. Exactly. To that. Yeah. So it's it's you kind of get that. So mm-hmm. okay, motion and movement doesn't necessarily mean progress. It's just being smarter about who you work with and the projects that you do. And and at the end of the day, a lot of that to me is non motion. 
is like taking the time smarter, just, not to, harder, just to chill and to yeah. enjoy life. Go out on a date with your wife. You know, I mean, just take some time for yourself to to not think about work and doing and conquering the world all the time. And it's hard for a kind of personality that's used to conquering and getting and being and tr- being competitive. It's hard to do that. I'm a competitive person, and well, I can and tell. But I find I find we're looking from the nod from the wife. She's like, "Yeah, I'm fine." I'm, that that wasn't a good nod. It was like, "Yeah, to a detriment." Yeah, but but I took up like doing home projects and stuff. Like back in Sierra Madre, we did a lot of remodeling and stuff. So I like learning about tools. I get it from my dad. So I build a deck, and so between projects, I'm very constructive. <laughs> I don't. So you're not you're not really relaxing. I mean, you're learning, but it's it's relaxing for me. It's therapeutic for me because the thing I like about a home project is that unlike the film business is that you can come up with an idea. I want to build a deck or I want to do something to improve the house, quality of life of the kids and all that I can dream up and I can go to home Depot. I can get the stuff, bring it home, build it, complete it. It's done. I've got nobody's approval other than hers to get what's in my head in reality. Mm-hmm. Unlike a movie or a pitch, it's like you could pitch for years and you're waiting for that phone to ring or someone to say yes. And this is the offset to that. I can get something done that I that I think of. And it's all upside for me. You get exercise, you get outside, fresh air, learn some new tools. It's an excuse to buy some really cool tools, which is filling up the garage. But... Um, but you can step back and say, Hey, we got a new deck. We got to do this. We got to do that. So it's, it's to me, um, therapeutic. So we're going to take that mid roll break and, uh, we'll be right back. So welcome back to the uh, men's journal everyday warrior podcast. Uh, we're here with Dan Myrick, Dan, where we left off. So you guys are done filming. You've put your actors through, uh, the equivalent of, of military seer school torture. Um, and then you guys go into the editing phase, which lasts eight to nine months. Right. Dude, walk me through. I mean, because now you've got to distribute this thing and it doesn't sound like you, you've had distribution totally secured at this point. Not at all. No, it was, it was a, it was a crazy process because as I mentioned earlier, the movie itself was sort of an experimental approach to doing a movie. And part of what Ed and I were trying to accomplish with that initial shooting in the woods was to create this sense of, of realism, um, you know, improvisation that looked 100% genuine. And, um, but initially that footage in the woods was supposed to only comprise about 20 minutes of the final film. (laughs) We had a phase two that we were shooting that would be a lot of talking heads, analysis about what was going on, backstory. So that was all being shot as well to be included in with the edit. And it was going to be more of a traditional, like a in search of documentary kind of thing. So we were putting all this together. And through the months, we started whittling it down and whittling it down and whittling it down. And realized um, after a while that actually we had the whole movie and just the found footage portion of it. And that took a while to sort of reveal itself through the edit process. Um, and once we finally got to that kind of painful place, um, we had to screen it. And that's really, that's one of the hardest things I think for anybody to do, whether you're writing a book or you're doing a movie or you're an actor, you know, going up on the screen or a comedian doing their, their bit, 
you've got to go in front of an audience and take your hits, right? And so the initial screening we we held um, at University of Central Florida Film Program, of all places. So it was a couple of years after ours was done. And that was a tough crowd. <laughs> Nobody liked the movie. It was, and granted, it was about two and a half hours long, but it was, it was uh, we got hammered and, at that screening. We felt miserable after that. No kidding. Yeah. And um, I mean, you're a film student re- reviewing a movie that you're kind of by design to critique. That's why yeah. you're kind of- and They're 18, 19. They've got, yeah, they've got all their opinions, right? Yeah. So that, that came away with, with, with dispiriting for us. And then, um, so we did back and look, when you screen things a certain, for certain groups of people, regardless of, of the, of the demographics, you can start to sense that there's a common issue going on. Right. It's like, so we were, we were teasing out what these common issues were with the screenings that we were doing. And then we made some adjustments to the movie and then we screened it at the Enzion Theater, which was like the independent film house in Orlando. Um, it was sort of a rough cut. And in the audience was this guy. His name was Kevin Fox. He was a producer from L.A. who was out on another movie. And a mutual friend said, hey, come check out our friend's Blair movie. Would you, you know, it was on the weekend. So he said, yeah, I'll come check it out. So we screened it for the Enzion, so the, the next revision of the film. And, um, and after it was over, the guy came up to us. Kevin Fox came up to Ed and I and said, you guys, I loved your movie. And he said, I'll tell you what, you're going to be famous. It was the first thing out of his mouth. You're go- you guys are going to be famous. I'm like, we're like, what? And that's when we was like, oh, complete 180 from the screening at UCF. Yeah. Right. So people were really you know, loving the scare moments and the funny moments and all that. We still had a lot of trimming to do, but we realized that, oh, we might have something that's worth submitting to festivals or have something that's worth, worth, um, viewing. But he was like the first one that saw this could be something big, like a a big indie movie. Right. Um, so yeah, we went back to the, the edit suite and Ed and I just continued tweaking and tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. And, um, and then we took it to New York, had a screening in New York, um, and Kevin Fox had connections with Jeremy Walker at Klein and Walker, which is a publicity firm in New York. And they were a pretty big deal in the indie space. And so he invited them and Jeremy Walker was in the audience and saw the movie and said, this is amazing. I've got to be a part of this movie. No way. Um, so we had this publicist on board mm-hmm. from New York. We're like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. So things are, you know, things are starting, starting to, to roll. And this is way early before Sundance and all that, but we are starting to assemble this team, got an attorney on board, Stuart Rosenthal from Bloomhurt God in LA. He got wind of it. And then eventually Kevin knew the guys at Endeavor talent mm-hmm. in, in, um, LA. They had just broken a, broken away from their, their big agencies and they formed Endeavor. So Tom Strickler and, and Ravenow and, and, uh, and those guys all got together and he got the tape, our rough cut to them. And they, they watched the movie on their own and, and I'll never forget it, but they flew out to Orlando. I mean, Ed and me and Greg were playing pool at a, at a, at a pub, a pub and they flew out in secret and they, went into the pub and said, we want to sign your movie up. Never happens. That never happens. We're like, Oh my God. And so, and that, so we were one of their first kind of big kind of buys. And 
So they rep- they wanted to represent the movie. So when they got on board, then things started really like falling into place. They they got us kind of a a choice screening at Sundance for them to review the movie, and then before you know it, everyone's talking about it like low level talking about. It. So it all builds on itself. I'm getting the blessing of John Pearson, and then Kevin Fox coming on board, and then you know. Kyana Walker coming on board, it all building, building, building. And the movie is standing on its own two feet. They're loving the film, which was really encouraging to Ed and I. This, this is fresh. This is different. This is truly a scary movie. We think this could be a big film. So all that ramping up started a strategy. How do we get into the big festivals? And so we had a strategy submitting to a couple of choice, like mm-hmm. LAFF and in mm-hmm. LA or Sundance, a couple other ones, but Sundance is sort of, that's the Holy grail, right? For indie movies. So we submitted to Sundance waiting and waiting and waiting. And, um, and then we get a call from LAFF, Los Angeles independent film festival. They're not, they're no longer around, but they were a pretty big deal in those days. And they said, we want your movie. You're in competition. We're like, Oh my God, this is great. And you just have to say yes. And say, okay, well, we're still waiting to hear back from Sundance. Da, da, da. So well, we really, really want you. Um, and then we get a call from Sundance and we're in. Like, and dude, I can not tell you what a relief that was for us. We Greg um was a drummer and he went out and bought a bunch of bongo drums. <laughs> <laughs> so we got drunk and we were just playing bongo drum, drums all night just as a just a release you know it was a, it was it was a blast but so we got into Sundance and there was for for a little while there was a debate do we go to LAFF or do we go to Sundance mm-hmm. and I'm like we got to do Sundance yeah I said, well Sundance was a midnight screening and we weren't in competition but in LAFF will be in competition Sundance do Sundance <laughs> no matter what do Sundance your worst day at Sundance is better than anybody else so we decided on doing Sundance, and um, and that's when things really started becoming surreal because we had no reference point going into this world, right? We were you guys are fresh out of the gate, a yeah. bunch of knuckleheads that were working day jobs, and so suddenly we're being courted at Sundance, and and because of the split screen show, which was primarily viewed by industry folks, mm-hmm. they were they were you know it was a big kind of hit with a industry elite in, in LA. So they had caught wind of this weird kind of documentary, this kind of about these three filmmakers missing. No one's sure what was real or what wasn't real. So it's, it's screening at Sundance. So it was getting some buzz prior to Sundance. And then we started our website about, you know, six months prior. So we were getting some heat off the website, ramping up into Sundance. So we had a, a lot of anticipation, anticipation built prior to Sundance. So, Endeavor, you know, rented a big condo out there and he's, we're holding court for all the distributors. We're sitting, Ed and I are sitting like a couple of knuckleheads in a, in a posh apartment in Sundance and like Lionsgate's come, or it's before Lionsgate, yeah, yeah. Artisan and New Line, they're all coming in. Oh, we love you guys. We love you. Blah, blah, blah. Can't wait to see your movie. Like this, so this, what's so hard about this? This is the way it's all done, right? <laughs> we had no clue that this is really unusual. And then we screened our first night at the Egyptian, um, which was completely nerve wracking, as you might imagine. Um, and we sold that night. We were the first one to sell at, at Sundance. And we sold to Artisan like at two in the morning that night. And it was, it was. A, did they, did they up their offer? After watching? Yeah, yeah. No, they, they, they uh, it was a, it was a bit of a bidding war because Miramax yeah. was interested. Yeah. 
Um, New Line was interested. And Artisan was fresh out of the gate. They had just done Pie the year before, Darren Aronofsky's movie, and they had big success with that. And that was like a five or six million dollar box office, which is huge for an indie movie. So they felt that Blair Witch was even more commercial than Pie mm-hmm. was. So mm-hmm. they're thinking this could be twenty million dollars, you know, for them. And it was funny because once they bought the movie, we were like, yeah, we're all celebration and you know, all the press is reporting and all that. So the, the heads of Artisan, Bill Block and Amir Malin, took us all out to dinner. So we met all the whole Artisan team on one side of the table. And that's the, the Haxon guys are all on this other side of the table. So we're dining, having a great time. It's the it's whole, you know, um, honeymoon phase, right? So we're yeah. at Sundance having a great time. And we were having a few drinks and... Someone said, well, so we just asked him, what do you think this is going to make in the box office? Oh, we're pretty confident this will do 20, could be 20 million. We're like, what? $20 million. Um, and then we, I laid a bet on the table. I said, I'll tell you what, uh, if we break 30 million box office for, for our whole run, you guys had to buy us a competition grade foosball table. Because I was really into foosball at the time, and I got all the guys hooked onto it. I bought some cheap Walmart version yeah. foosball table for the office, and it was our stress reliever, right? I mean, we were just we get all bunched up in the edit. We go up and play a game of foosball, and I got a bit of an obsession after a while. <laughs> so I said, and I always ended those big, you know, at the pub. You got the, the massive big Tornado foosball table. So you guys got to buy us a competition grave foosball table if we break thirty million at the box. And they're like, yeah, whatever, okay. And they're just it was a joke. Um, we did 32 in the first weekend and lo and behold, man, like two weeks later at our offices, the del- delivery up. truck comes up and they're offloading that baseball table. Right? Yeah. We took a picture of us in front of it and it was just, we were off to the races at that point. So, um, so it was a, it was a storybook, like dream come true for any indie filmmaker what happened with Blair Witch. It was so unusual and, and you could not have scripted it to be like more, more amazing. Um, but it is definitely the exception to the rule. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it was, it was a crazy special time. Um, and I'll never forget it. It's just, it was, it was incredible. And for a lot of people, they probably don't know this set records in the sense of, well, yeah, I've, I've read both 22,000 for the uh, production 35,000. So let's say ballpark 30,000. And how much did it do at the box office total? All in, it did about 250 million worldwide. Um, Lowest production budget to highest grossing film. Yeah. I mean, it's when you're factoring in $1999, I think it still holds the record. Um, And, and I think DVD was like close to 60, 70 million. (sighs) Pretty crazy. So yeah, it was insane. Um, you know, we did spend more money once Artisan bought the movie. We, um, we shot, they wanted us to shoot new endings. We shot five new endings for no it. No kidding. Um, cause they weren't sure about the guy standing in the corner in the basement. I thought that was beautiful. So they were freaking out about, I don't know if this, so we did a test screening in New Jersey and mm-hmm. people were like, not sure about the ending. And, you know, truth be told, even when you get an advance, like it was, a, a company buys your movie and they give you, you know, an advance. You don't see that money for like a year. You, no kidding. The advance is like on paper, but you don't, they take the advance out of the box office. So the movie has to get released and start bringing in revenue. And then mm-hmm. they give you your advance. So it's smart. 
So we're still broke, right? We've got the biggest hit at Sundance and everyone's talking about, you know, how, how great everything is. We're still trying to pay our phone bill, right? So they said, look, you guys want to shoot five new endings. We, we think we want to test them out. So that was money right then and there. We'll pay, pay you to go shoot. Five. Like, oh, all right, we'll go do it. So they paid us to shoot these five new endings, which were all the endings that Ed and I threw out and that we hated. But we shot them anyway, cut them in. Nobody liked them. So um, it was funny. I remember calling Bill Block, co-president of Artisan at the time, said, Bill, the guys and I, we talked this over. So we really want to keep the original ending yeah. in the movie. And Bill was like, to his credit, said, well, Dan... I don't know. I think it's going to cost us a lot at the box office, but we'll keep your ending. <laughs> he, he qualified the statement. Yeah. Yeah. So, gotcha. so it ended up being one of the most talked about aspects of the movie. Oh, yeah. Of course. But, and, that, and that's what I found just disturbing or bothering is, I mean, the end left you in such. Yeah. I mean, you, you went through a roller coaster of emotions. Of it's, the way a, that yeah. ended. it's the ambiguity and not really knowing what was going on. And it was, it was the creepiness of that. I think that lent itself. And it's a fine line to walk when you're, when you're, playing with ambiguities like that but um but it just goes to show you that nobody really knows anything in the business even even the executives that artists nobody really knows <laughs> they're like everyone's sort of it's a bit of a crap shoot no matter what you do um so it's always a hard road it's always a tough sell i mean any dream usually is and um but again if you're if you're confident in what you're doing and you think you've got something cool and you can usually tell whenever you're pitching something or an idea or a nugget of a creative idea and people respond on the kind of the ground level you, you know you're on to something and that was what Blair was we pitched that basic premise to anybody like, really when are you getting that footage well I mean yeah. what kind of you knew you were on to you see a little spark in their eye so we knew we were on to something. We didn't know how big it was going to be, but we knew we had a little bit of a hook that, that uh, would turn people on. And I think any good idea is that way. And so some weird things started to happen after the, uh, the film. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if it was you that told me or if we read this. Was there a certain uh, organization that paid you a visit? Governmental? Uh... Well, there was a cop. Um, i trying to think if there's anybody else. Was it, was it the FBI? No, he was a he was an Albany police detective who thought this was real. Thought it was real. Got a call from this guy, and so I'm like nervous. You know, like, okay, I've researched this. I've worked in that area for 20 years, and I've talked to my colleagues. And he's going on and on about. I've gone through the past case files. I do not see this case anywhere in the Albany area or the Maryland area. I'm just curious as to where. Where this case, I just stopped him. I said, sir, sir, this is all a movie. This is all fake. And there's a long pause where I'm thinking, am I going to get arrested or what's going on? He just started laughing. <laughs> no, okay. He just started cracking up. He goes, you have no idea how much energy I put into researching this. <laughs> I go, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. He was like, well, if there's anything I can do for you guys and help out in any way, I'd love to be involved. He was a really nice guy. But... I can just picture him making phone calls to his buddies at the, at the station and all. I'm like, what is up with this? Like three missing filmmakers saying, I've never heard of this case before. And I worked that area for years. He was completely sucked in. And he goes, that guy did a good job because it's my job to not to be fooled like this. That's, so. That is the, the ultimate uh, compliment. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. At, at what point did you guys find out about uh, Time Magazine? Um, they We did a photo shoot for them. Um, we were kind of in this sort of whirlwind of magazine shoots. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the, the minute we got bought, we were purchased at Sundance, you know, like Mike 
Williams, who's one of the actors, I mean, he came in late, so he just got off, off steps out of the shuttle van, and like, so what happened? You got to go to a premiere photo shoot, dude. Get ready. He's like, what? And off he went. So he's doing a cover shoot for Premiere Magazine, and so it was just a whirlwind. So Time Magazine wanted to do a photo shoot with us. I mean, did, not only the photo shoot, the cover. We That's, didn't know the cover at the time, so it was like we were do a photo shoot for Time Magazine. We figured it would be some article buried mm-hmm, into the mm-hmm, magazine somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, oh, this is cool, Time Magazine. Um, so we did this. We did this shoot for Time, and um, and a lot of the most of these shoots were kind of cheesy. They wanted to not like, ooh, you know, doing all this like scary stuff with, but it was fun. Um, and it wasn't until about two weeks after we did the shoot that we heard some rumors through our publicist that you guys they're talking about possible to cover, and we're like, what? So we heard a little bit of, you know, machinations about they were, they were de- debating on whether or not we should make the cover or not. And a lot of it's just what's most newsworthy. Yes. And I think, yeah, wasn't yeah, it yeah. the time where Kennedy's plane went down? Yeah. Right around that time where Kennedy's plane went, Jr. Yeah, yeah. went down. So, oh, that's definitely going to make the cover. I hate to think in terms like that because it was a tragedy. But we're a couple goofy filmmakers. I mean, this, the, you know. So, so that was, we weren't sure. And then I was sitting in my office. Uh, we were on the Disney back lot at the time. They gave us some free kind of bungalow space. So we we're sitting on the back lot. And Greg, the producer, walks in and he had the Time Magazine cover in one hand and the Newsweek cover in the other hand, same week, and walks in the den. I'm like, what, what is happening? And we were on the cover of both magazines at the same week. And we're like, and then I'm getting calls from friends. Dude, I'm in the airport. You're on the cover of Time Magazine. It's a magazine rack. Freaking out. Best advertisement you guys can, can ask for. It, yeah. was, it was just, it was absolutely crazy. And, um, and then I remember, I've said this a million times, but uh, I remember Ed and I, Ed came into town. It was the Barnes and Nobles in Pasadena. And we were in Pasadena. I can't remember what it was for. I think we were doing some interviews or whatever so ed and i went to the barnes and noble in pasadena and we were walking by the magazine rack and barnes and noble especially in pasadena has a big film section right lots of film filmmaker magazine and movie maker magazine and variety all there every one of those magazines had us mentioned from variety to movie maker it was blair Witch mentioned blair Witch, and we're like and we're looking around nobody knows who we are we're like we're on every one of these magazines and we were just like trying to process from obscurity to to this becoming a crazy thing and this was and it was just getting started and then so then we got into can so we were like you're going to can like okay so we hop a plane we're going to can and we get off the plane and jeremy walker who's absolutely one of the most brilliant publicists i think who ever lived he's just an amazing individual and got us he he understood social media and blogger we did interviews for the smallest blog to the biggest publication you can i mean he was just we were doing interviews back to back for a solid year but so we got to can and jeremy said okay so we are got you guys on a panel so, oh cool i think i'm gonna do a little and i'm gonna do a little panel and so they usher us it's like the, the day after we arrive so we're kind of like well, you know so jet lagged so we go to this panel Ron Howard is on the panel, Spike Lee, John Sales, right, and then Ed and Dan. <laughs> like, what? Okay, we should be in the audience on this panel. But anyway, we're up there on the panel, and we're sort of the 
the flavor of the month, right? Yeah. We're the yes. we're the shiny new toy. So everyone's hey guys clapping like, oh my god, I can't believe we're even here. And um Faye Dunaway is in the audience. No kidding. Asking us about how much she loved our movie and asking us all these questions about Blair Witch. It's like, you're Faye Dunaway. <laughs> I have a few questions for you. So it was surreal. I mean, being in the south of France, if you've ever been there, it's just surreal in itself, right? It's like a fairyland to be there. And Cannes is Hollywood on steroids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. International audience and all that. So we won the, the Prix du Lusignes Award, which is the Young Directors Award. So we won that, that, that kind of coveted award, which was really an honor and amazing. And, um, but it was two weeks of just nonstop, party uh interviews publicity events i don't think we slept more than five hours the whole time Mm. and so they had a party if i'm rambling too much just let me know but but we had a party on the beach for blair it's again another one of many surreal moments but they shipped in like 300 trees and planted them on the beach to make woods in, in the south of france right well we didn't know this they're like, so Ed and I get trucked. So you got to go to the party. It's like, oh, we just want to sleep. It's your party, man. You got to go. All right. So they took us to the party. And there's a huge line down the, down the croissant, the, the, the boulevard there. And, uh, and we, so we go in the party. Like, let them in, let them in. We're going, hey, sorry, man. You know, we're all embarrassed. We go in. There's a forest on the on beach. On the beach. Right. There's probably several hundred people at this party all you know, having a great time. They have no clue who we are. And we're sitting there, um, and we're on the beach. It was Rob, Greg, it was the whole, the whole gang, Mike, Rob, and, and, and Ed, and, and Greg, and myself, sitting on the beach, and we just all sparked up a cigar. <laughs> I get emotional. But we're sitting there looking at the south of France, the, the ho- like one of the big hotels across the, across the, 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 the boulevard, woods surrounded by woods, broke as shit six months earlier and the whole world is like at our feet right now smoking a cigar i'm like what has happened it's like the most amazing experience ever and we just sort of like you know we did it man you're making me emotional dude that's the thing is you tell yourself that dreams do come true you tell yourself that you're constantly telling yourself that because that's what's motivating you like you see other people win the lottery you see other people win um and get there and make their dreams and it's it's and it's you read about it and you talk about it but when it actually happens when you're actually when you see there and you're living their your dream um it just reinstills your faith in everything right it's like i wish everyone could have this feeling i really wish everyone i mean it doesn't come easy it's a heck of a lot of hard work and you need to be surrounded by an amazing team um, but it can happen. It can and does happen. So that was one of those moments. And then like right after that, Jeremy came up, tapped, tapped us on the show. Hey, Mel Gibson is at your party. I'm like, Mel, can we meet him? Sure. So we, Mel's hanging out at a party. And they do that a lot at these Hollywood parties. Yeah. So they'll ask a celebrity or two to come mm-hmm. in to kind of up your profile. Like Mel Gibson was at our premiere party. So we go over to where Mel's sitting and it's all cordoned off. He's got his bodyguards and everything. He's like, hey, I'm here to meet Mel. I'm like, hey, Mel, how you doing? Hey, guys, congratulations. You know, it's a nice guy. Um, but it was, 
that was just the beginning of all these amazing sur- surreal moments. I mean, I could go on all day and tell you yeah. about what that whole two years was like. But um, but yeah, realizing the dream is always an emotional thing for me because, you know, especially when you start with such humble beginnings. And, and I, was, I wasn't like, like some of these folks. Are. I mean, I wasn't like dirt poor or anything like that. And we working- but you weren't class, rich. Working class family- I worked my way through college, you know, it was, it wasn't, it was, it was, wasn't easy, but I, a lot of people had it worse than I did, but it was, it was the American dream, man. It was really the American dream where you have a great idea, you have a good team, anybody can reach that pinnacle of success. If, 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 if you've got, if you've got the wherewithal and, a, and a, a good team and a good idea behind you. And that's what, is so amazing sometimes when you see that happen and it was just very fortunate that we were able to do it let me, let me ask this because i've seen this in a lot of high performers guys who've won championships and they're like hey i just don't want to talk about that championship anymore yeah. um do you still hold the blair wish project as your most coveted film yeah in a lot of ways i mean the thing with blair it's always a double-edged sword in a way because you get defined by that you know that's like it's like if you did one deployment, that was the deployment. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, all yeah. anyone knows you about. Like, well, no, man, we did. Well, there's a hundred other things that we did that we are equally as amazing. It just didn't get the publicity. So, I'm incredibly proud of Blair Witch. Incredibly proud. It came at the right time in my life, the right time in the film business. It was. It will always be something that I'm proud of and will be known for. And but, do you want to be defined by that? Well, in some ways, yes, mm-hmm. because. We worked hard on it. I mean, we we thought we were doing something cool and original, and we wanted to um, make a movie that was truly scary for people, not just something that had the pretext of being a horror film, but something that really got under your skin. So I think we pulled that off for most people. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment. I mean, I don't hold back at all. We worked really hard to make that happen. That's awesome. But at the same time, you know, I have other tools in my belt, right? And like my last film, Skyman, I'm very proud of. And we got a great review in New York Times on that. We premiered at the Austin Film Festival. It wasn't Blair Witch by the social standard or the society standards in, 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 its, in its box office, but I'm very proud of that movie. And I'm pretty much proud of every film I've been on. And and so, but that to me is all bonus, right? Blair yeah. Witch was like, you, you climbed down Everest and you... You totally, it's the highest peak in the, in the, in the known universe and right you, now. You, you did it without oxygen. With no oxygen. Yeah. You told the Sherpas to take a hike and you're doing it, right? And you made it. And so every other mountain peak is cool and great and they're special in their own ways, but Everest will always be Everest, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword that you, at least for me, um, you don't want to be solely defined by one thing, but at the same time, you're so honored and humbled that you got to do it. And so I never really get tired of answering the Blair questions or people that are interested in it because it might be their first time hearing about stuff. Um, and I've, I've always said that it is best to be known for something, right? They're not, not, yeah. they're not, they'd be completely not known for anything. So I'm, um, and and the sort of the armchair philosopher in me um, sees Blair as an amazing case study. Like stand, looking on the outside, looking in, like why did Blair happen, and what what made it what it was? Because I get asked these questions all the time, and some very kind of intellectual, informed 
you know, journalists will, will have these long discussions about what was that about Blair that was so different? And I was like, you know, I was on the inside looking out. And, but sometimes I like to be where you are, kind of analyzing it from a more objective perspective. And so I'm, it's, a, it's a really interesting case study to kind of look at what generated so much interest and made people so, in some ways, easily fooled. I still have people today that think Blair was real. And, um, and, and most of my films, if you notice, sort of dabble in that space about what is it about phenomena that people want to buy into? And um, it's a little bit of psyops, you know, making mm -hmm. movies is manipulation, mm -hmm. right? And I see it happening in the media. I know exactly what the game they're playing, whether it's... If you spin the narrative long enough. If it's MSNBC or Fox yeah. News, I get what they're doing. I see how it's all doing it. And so it's... it's um, as a case study, it's it's an amazing um, thing to evaluate about how susceptible we are as, as as humans to want to believe something, and and you just give them enough of that um, information, and people will be they're all in. It's funny you, you mentioned a case study because I talked to a buddy who went to film school, uh, Loyola uh, Marymount, and uh, he said, yeah, he's like, it's basically the case study that every you know, you can count on it's a case study yeah. in every film school now. Right. And I know you've got a lot more films in you. Mm. And I know we've talked about teaching and yeah. that you found, you find this emotional return on investment of teaching the next generation. You just see the excitement in their side. Their, exactly. Their right. eyes. Is there, is there ever a future where you may do that permanently at one point? Yeah, I think, I think I, I could see myself doing that. Well, one, it's, it's just easier on the body. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, you can do it remotely. You can do it yeah. remotely. Um, I mean, cause making a movie is, it's, it's stressful, you know, both physically, psychically, mentally, it's really, a, it's very, very stressful. And, um, and as much as I love doing it, um, I also love encouraging others to do it. And, and I also acknowledge that, look, I'm, I'm of my own generation. I can only see life through my own prism of experience. And, and, and there's a whole new generation of filmmakers that are seeing things differently. And it's exciting to see the yeah. kind of stories they're telling through social media now and different form factors and all this new like VR. My son's into VR now. Like this is an incredible new world of storytelling. So encouraging them to do what it is their generation wants to do, but at the same time, linking them back to the fundamentals of storytelling. There's still value. It's like when, that's why we studied the classics when I was in college and reading those classic books and all this is what a good story. I mean, we read Mark Twain and Shakespeare and those guys. There's a reason why they endure because they're following those basic rules of storytelling. So instilling that fundamental core that there's no free lunch. Mm -hmm. You may have all the gimmicks and you may be an Instagram influencer now, but next week, if you don't really have what it takes to engage, you don't yeah. have that foundation. So I like to think I can be the person that like, Foundation's important, but do it in your own way. That's very, really satisfying for me. And and they'll come back with stuff that you just didn't anticipate. I mean, I've got other filmmaker friends of mine that are teachers, and they really love it because you get to learn and you get to experience kind of whole new perspectives on storytelling. It's 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 just a lot of fun. It doesn't pay anything, but it's but it is fun. They, you, I've told my wife she thinks I'm crazy. I'm like, 
what do you want to be when you're 60, 70? I said, I want to be teaching yeah. at, at a university leadership development. That's it. Right. And probably very few universities will hire me. Yeah. But there will be one and maybe the university of Idaho out of Coeur d'Alene. Yeah. I will do that. I don't care. Um, but you know, you've got a project of your own and talk about being hard on the body. I want to talk about this. So you're doing a bike ride to raise, uh, funding for the wounded warrior project. Correct. Yeah. Tell me a little about that when it starts the, the distance and, and you're doing it by yourself, which is yeah. a little risky. It's a little risky. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I kind of got back into biking during COVID. It was, a, it was, a, you know, there wasn't a lot to do, especially here on the Island and the gyms were all shut down and everything. So, you know, I didn't want to just sit there and, you know, become a couch potato. So, I can't really jog because I got like a bad ankle. So it mm-hmm. starts to bother mm-hmm. me when I'm jogging. So biking, took up biking again, started biking around the, here and, and then discovered this subculture called bike packing. And I love camping. I've camped my whole life. So I, oh, this is cool. It's a combination of biking, adventure biking, and going out and basically camping. And so one thing led to another, spending a lot of time on YouTube, looking at videos and all and this. There's this big tour divide it's called the grant the the uh great divide mm-hmm. mountain bike mm-hmm. route gdmbr and it starts in banff canada and goes all the way down to the mexican border and it's all off-road mountain bike trails connection uh of you know logging roads gravel roads occasional highway but mostly 90 percent is all off-road and you're going down the spine of the continental design divide so it's absolutely gorgeous but a lot of climbing it's about 180 yeah. 180,000 feet of climbing <sighs> So I said, this typical me is like, like I, I, I learned to sk- oh, skiing a little bit in Sundance. Like I did the bunny slope, like the first part of the afternoon. And then I want, I'm going to go do a black diamond just for the hell of it. Right. That's me. <laughs> that's a choice. That, that's definitely a choice. No, it's stupid. But so like, I'm just getting this back bike packing thing. So I'm going to do the granddaddy of them all, which is this, this particular route. And how many uh, miles total? It's 2,700 miles end to end and about 180,000 feet of climbing. So um, I said, I'll do the first half last year. That's what I did. So, so it was from, and I couldn't go into Canada because of the COVID restrictions. Yeah. I had to start the border. So I went from, from Roosevelt, Montana, and got all the way down to uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which okay. is about 1,400 miles. So that's part one. And I'm finishing up part two in two days. I leave in two days. Um, so I'm starting, I'm going northbound this time. I'm going from the Mexican border, Antelope Wells and stopping in steamboat. So that's through, about through Texas. Uh, no, I'm going through New Mexico into Colorado. Okay. We're coming down. I went through, uh, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, and then into Colorado. Beautiful. Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. I mean, I can't tell you how beautiful it is. I mean, it's hard work, but it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And the people you meet are incredible. Um, but yeah, going solo unsupported and, uh, and I can show you the bike out there. It's like your whole life is on your bike. Yeah. It's like your, your, your kid, look. your kit's completely on your bike. And you go for, I don't know, maybe three or four days you're in the back country and you have to camp and all that stuff. And then you'll come into a town and you'll resupply. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And then you go back out again and you're, and you're just doing the trail. So are you ready for the heat? Cause I mean, it's, it's what 60 out, outside well, right now. And now you're, you're going to step into a hundred. I know it's crazy. But last year it was actually pretty hot and, and it was 106 degrees in Eureka when I started last year. Damn. Um, and then there was fires all the way down the, the yeah. fires yes. everywhere. Um, but I grew up in Florida, so I'm, I'm used to the heat and it's, um, 
you know, it's a lot about, as you, I'm sure you know, doing as much PT as you guys do, it's like listening to your body. So much of us listening to your body, not trying to push through and be a badass. Your body is really good at communicating what it wants and needs. We're so, just not very good at listening. At, there yeah, you go. yeah. And a lot of guys that get into trouble, they try to like so many, they'll start off the route on their bike and they're like weekend warriors. They'll ride a few times a week and they'll go, I'm going to do a hundred miles a day. I said, you blow your knee out in three days and suddenly you have to tap out. It's like, start off easy. You know, if it's hot, ride in the mornings or ride in the evenings. Don't do it in the, in the, in the heat of the day. And just be smart. Take it in smaller chunks, and as you condition into the ride, then you'll then you'll be more more robust yeah. as you get up into the higher elevations where it's cooler. But um, but yeah, a lot of it's just camping techniques and and just being smart, you know, avoiding bears and that sort of thing. The, the realization <laughs> that we're we're not spring chickens anymore. Absolutely, is, uh, yeah. For, you uh, don't recover as fast. You know, you get an injury, and it takes a little bit longer to recover. And, and knock on wood, nothing major will happen. But I always, you know. I've got my spot tracker. So, yeah. you know, search and rescue can come pick me up if I'm really in trouble. Is it, um, is it like a little button? It yeah, is got a, a little I've fallen. I can't get up. SOS button. button. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a satellite tracker. So it allows me to also send text messages via satellite. Yeah. So yeah. I can communicate to Julia and say, okay, I'll be here. I'm leaving now. Everything's cool. And she can see on the map where I'm moving. Yeah, every 10 minutes it uploads and she can track me. So if I'm now sitting, she wanted to worry, is she, is she going to be the type of person that's checking in on? I the mean, always worry right all husbands worry but she's she's like she encourages me to do it and so this is where i'm super super lucky um keeps me in shape yeah and it's it's a little bit of that um you know challenge that i i kind of need in my life so is is and we'll try to get this out and now is this something people can follow you you're going to do check-ins on social media and i'm thinking i'm thinking about taking up a notch in social media because i've got a facebook page where i checked in a little bit but i might do a little better this time on this part two because we got you know a, a fair amount of donations for the for that was the my Wounded Warrior question. project yeah so I really want to kind of um, get as much as I can generated for for that cause as I can so well I know you're, you're taking a camera with you yeah so document it we'll cover it in Men's Journal awesome uh, but until then is there a place people can go to make a donation yeah you can go to the Wounded Warrior Project website and you, you put in the search function you put my name in and it'll take you to my page okay. so you can okay. donate right directly on the page you can also follow me on facebook so you can get to the link that way as well but um, you're, you're just showing your age with the facebook i know dude facebook i know my, my 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 daughter and my you're you're doing doing facebook? Yeah. so i'm just getting an instagram now so okay i gotta do instagram um i don't have a social media team anymore so i gotta I gotta go i gotta go uh i gotta evolve but, um, but yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing experience and it's for an amazing cause for, you know, contributing to, 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 to the lives of the, of the soldiers that make, make and help people like me do bike rides. You yeah, know, yeah. this is, I mean, they're, they're, they're allow us to, to, we take it for granted sometimes the freedoms that we have in this country. And it's just, it's, it's Dan, that's, you know, that's a freaking understatement. Yeah. That's, you know, perspective and don't get me started perspective is a uh is a powerful thing yeah and we've had it so good i i'll use the word entitlement we've become entitled to think that 100 we, we've become karens in a sense well that, i mean the thing is it's just it's, again we're getting back to the double-edged sword thing it's like uh, you know as a father i'm raising my kids not to go through the same crap i went through yeah of course to i want them life. i want to give them a better life provide for them 
not have to worry about paying for college and all that kind of stuff. So you work really hard to provide that for them. But at the same time, I learned a lot having to yeah. struggle. I learned a lot, you know, pulling myself up by my bootstraps and that sort of thing. So you want to convey to them that what you've got is, is you're very fortunate. And there's a lot of people behind the scenes, uh, you know, allowing for this life that we have and, and no, no, no one person is doing it in a vacuum. Yeah. And, and when I think about defense and our soldiers out there in the field, and the more I get to know um, the community um, I mean, I've always had a respect for it, but it's, it's, it's a lot of it's a cursory respect, a real deep respect for the sacrifices that are made, um, the intellect, the creativity that's required to do an effective job in those fields is something I don't think gets enough credit. It's, and, it's the American way. It really Regardless is. of the military, I mean, we, we, you know, there's a reason that the, you go overseas and people ask if you're a cowboy. And yeah. Answers, you know, I grew up in, in Barra. You're damn right, I'm a cowboy. Yeah, it's the American way. Yeah, and we, and I, I like to still like to think that we're defending the good. It's, it's, yeah. it's ham-handed as we've been in some conflicts, yeah. and we, yeah. we, and but at the end of the day, most of the mistakes we've made have been well-intentioned. That we, we we were going in for the right idea and you reason. You know what they say about the the road to hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, but there is a fundamental difference between our guys and the Taliban. Yes. There's a, there's a clear difference in, in between good versus evil, in my opinion. And, and like there's, there's, and I, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to oversimplify it. There's, there were members of the Taliban that didn't want to be there. They were, they were, you know, you're in a village and, the warlord of the Taliban is saying, I'm going to kill your family if you don't join. So you can have a lot you of join. choice. You join, yeah. right? So I can't say that as, as uh, all of it, but... but Even having fought in that, I, I have empathy for that. This is a story from another time, but we had to watch a guy we captured for, it was like 36 hours yeah. until somebody uh, came and picked him up. And we ended up playing video games with the guy. Right. And he was a, I don't want to say a high level, but he was a significant Al-Qaeda uh, leader. And you walked away and you're like, hey, there's not much difference between that guy and us. Yeah. Other than the ideology he just, believes, yeah, the ideology something, we believe. Yeah. There's a different kind of something got tweaked or perspectives, experiences. Yeah. Yeah. What it, he was fed in terms of. of and uh, when you're young, I mean, you, those madrasas and they're pumping, they're pumping out, you know, these, these extremists and stuff like that and sending them over. It's like part of you feel sorry for the whole thing. I, like, I, wish you guys weren't brainwashed in that regard. And, and, you know, we're all brainwashed to some degree. It was where we grow up, but, um, but I, again, getting back to the soldiers that are out there, you know, ground pounding and doing, doing that dirty, hard, uh, demanding job is something I have a great respect for. And also when they come home, transitioning back to civilian life and giving them, you know, a firmer ground to stand on. Yeah. I think that's one of the things yeah. we've, kind of fail as a country in some ways is, is transitioning those guys and gals back to 100%. Yeah. So that's in my really micro little way trying to help out in that regard. But, um, but yeah, I would greatly appreciate and respect what, what you guys do for us. Well, it, we, we, we have the respect and appreciate what you're doing, raising funds for the, uh, the wounded warrior project. We'll, we'll make sure to, to promote that. But in the same regard, man, you know, what we did between missions over there as we pulled up those Haji copies 
of DVDs, yeah. which were, was stealing your IP. Uh, <laughs> but no, 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 we watched movies, man. That, yeah. that was how we decompressed and yeah. in, in between missions. And I've watched more movies overseas than I, I, I do just in the confines of the, of the and United that's, States. You know, that's, it's really encouraging because everyone loves movies. Oh yeah. I don't care where you are. I mean, every country, every, every culture loves movies and um, it's a great communicator. It's, it's the one thing, it's the one medium that is more immersive than any other. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, in our, my own little humble way being a part of that process is really cool. So we end our podcast on two questions, which I think you'll appreciate. Uh, the first one is, and I, I almost say, you know, answer these questions is if your children were sitting in the room, um, how will Dan Myrick evaluate or measure whether he's lived a good life? Well, one big measure is my kids, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you see your kid do something genuinely good for somebody, you're like, okay, I must have done something right. Right. When you see real empathy in them, um, and they want to do or help somebody without being prompted or mm-hmm. pressured, you're like, mm-hmm. all right, so I've put another decent person into the world yeah. that, that will be yeah. a productive member of society. So that's, that's definitely a great moment. And, you know, occasionally we'll get like a teacher will call us or a friend of a neighbor and say, your kid's awesome. He's such a great kid, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you did such a good job at parents. And, you know, we're certainly have our flaws and our mistakes, but it's really nice to hear that occasionally that, okay, you know, I was sort of winging it, but yeah. it's, it's, there, it's, there's no manual for it. There's no manual. So, um, so that's a reassuring moment. I think that's a, a damn good answer. The, the next one is for you. What are those one to three non-negotiables? Those, those keys to success that have gotten you here that you would pass on to the listeners who, who stay still maybe stumbling on their path through past obstacles, trying to achieve success in, in their way. And it's a hard one. It's a hard one. Um, because a lot of it comes with making mistakes. And, but if there's one thing I could try to convey to people is, is know what battles to pick to fight. You can't fight them all, right? So the smart money is on the person that knows where to put their energy in to fight the right battle. It's just like you're going to war, man. It's like, you know, yeah. you can't fight every battle all at once. Like stoicism one-on-one. Exactly. Yeah. You got to strategically plan. What's the most, what's the priority battles I need to win the overall game. So, um, so try to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Cause you, there's some arguments you need to lose to win the bigger play. Um, and that just comes with experience. And, and I know young filmmakers will sit there and stand their ground on every little item. So all you're doing is shooting yourself in the foot. You got to give a little to get a little. And so try to understand that every, every argument doesn't need to be won. It's not a reflection on your ability. It's not a reflection on your pride. It's okay to compromise if it serves the, 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 the greater goal. And that's, um, I think, the one thing, piece of advice... It took me a while to learn because as a director, you're especially, you're the, like the, you're the, you're the guy running the show. And if you show weakness and you've been, you've had those CEOs, right? Like it's, they're afraid to show weakness. There's no way they're really smart guys. And the elite, those elite teams, they're collaborative. They're everyone's, we're on a team. Who's got the best idea here? Cause that's what we're going to go with. So that's really what it took me a while to learn that. And I think that's what I try to convey, but that just took experience realizing, you know, sometimes your ideas aren't the best ones. 
they, there's so much to unpack right there. But yeah. you know, I used to say when I was younger, if somebody knew me, uh, I was the ultimate hammer. Yeah. All I saw was nails. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't, and, and you say weakness, hmm. I, you know, I think you actually got to reframe. It's not weakness. It's just, it's knowing when to, as you said, give in order to take later down the road. It really is maturity. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's understanding that there's nuance to any operation. It's just a lot of nuance. Um, part of what we do as filmmakers or uh, in the special operations community is, leaders. is, is yeah. they're leaders in this diplomacy. You have to, you're working with human beings, whether they're the enemy or their own, your own team, you have to, be able to assess what are the personality profiles you're dealing with. Some guys are great at sending them out and doing this. Some guys are great for bringing them and doing that. And so having the maturity to be able to understand that about the human condition comes with, with, with wisdom, hopefully, and a little experience, but, but you don't need to fight everybody tooth and nail and yeah. everything. And that's, that's ends up hobbling you in the long run, yeah. I think. Well, Dan, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I know this was a long conversation. Uh, we, we, of course, we didn't get to anything, and we will. And I know there's future, some future podcasts in the works with what we have. And I just went on Andy Stumpf's uh, podcast, Cleared Hot. We talked about the 777 yeah, project, absolutely. which we're all invested into uh, yeah. to right now. Still working to make that happen. Yeah, but it's, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. According to Andy and I, uh, come higher hell water. Mm. Um, we're we're going to find a way to, to, to pull this off. But Thank you for joining us. Good luck Thank on the you. ride. We'll push that. And for the listeners, again, go to Wounded Warrior Project. Uh, put Dan Myrick in the search engine. His page will come in. And please, please, just just make a donation no matter how small it is. Uh, I know the Wounded Warrior Project will put that money towards helping the, uh, the vets uh, coming home uh, to transition, whether it's mental health issues or helping them find uh, employment. Dan, can't thank you enough. And for all the listeners, this is the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal Magazine. Men's Journal Magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.